I can turn your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Would you do that as the children are exiting? You can do that. And it's always good to be back together with you. Welcome to Berean today. And it's always our desire to minister to you in some way. If we can do that by answering questions or praying for you or some other way, could you please let us know? You can find that right on the seat in front of you, that QR code. Just hit that and let us know how we would... How can we can be helpful to your walk with the Lord? I trust you were in the Word this week. It is, um, I try to, it's my desire to, to encourage you to often towards that end. We have a Bible reading trifold available in the foyer if that's helpful. If you are a hard copy reader, if you're a digital reader, I encourage you to download the YouVersion Bible app. That can help you accomplish the same thing, reading through the Bible each year. When the Lord first established the people who were to be His representatives to the nation to go and tell what He was like and His salvation and let His Word be known and His knowledge of Him on the earth, He said to His people in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 18, He said, You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. Before they would go out and be a witness, before they could do what the Lord wanted, before the knowledge of Him and His salvation could be clear to the nation, He told them, Take my word and... Uh, put them on your heart, on your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead, visible at all times before you. you shall, verse 19, you shall teach them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. All the times to your children. Why? Because there's only going to be one generation of believers if you're not doing that. And so it was very, very important that they did that. And then he says, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Just very specific, very clear, very widespread. This is what it's supposed to look like with my word as you come into this nation and this uh, land where I'm, that I'm going to give you. Later in Joshua 1.8, very similar, God's bringing them into the land of the promised land. And verse 8, he says, similar instruction. He says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. In other words, you're saying it all the time. But you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful, here it is, to do according to all that is written in it. So how optional was that? Not at all. For then it, you, will, it, you will make your way prosperous and you'll have success. Always positive blessing and encouragement from the Lord when we do what He says, when you spend time in the Word. And then in the New Testament, we see much the same emphasis that hasn't changed. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joint and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's powerful, and that's what we want. We want it to divide the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. We want to reveal what our intent is and the intents of our heart, always, so that we walk in accordance to His Word. And if we would desire good relationships, we can have an understanding about who we should interact with from 1 John chapter 5 and verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and do His commands. How can you love each other best? By loving God and doing His commands. For this is the love of God, not our sentiment towards Him, not even our worship that we spent in song a minute ago. The love of God primarily is that we keep His commandments. That's how we express love to God. That's His love language, our obedience. The more we do it, the more we express our love to Him. It's acknowledging He knows what's best. It's acknowledging that He's given His law so that we can be blessed and encouraged and strengthened and have prosperous way and good success. For His commandments are not burdensome. He's not a downer on your life. He's not trying to pour water on what you want to do. His commandments are not burdensome. Therefore, you're good. And so we have to know what they say. And then, obviously, very, very basic and vital part of the life of a believer is to spend time daily in the Word of God. And then Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, again, very clear. But I say, walk by the Spirit. That's what we want to do, right? We want to walk by the Spirit. I pray before I come up here, Lord, help me to walk in the power of your Spirit, filled with your Spirit, with the gifts of the Spirit, functioning inside the fruit of the Spirit. That's what we want. We want to walk in the Spirit. And you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. And that's what we don't want to do, right? We don't want to walk in the flesh, so walk in the Spirit. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. That's that unredeemed part of us still. The new you on the inside, the flesh on the outside still waiting to be glorified. They're in opposition to one another. There's going to be open battle, open war, so that you may not do the things that you please. 
And by walking by the Spirit, of course, that's synonymous with the passage I tell you all the time, letting the Word of Christ dwell richly in us in Colossians 3. Because the symptoms of both of those are exactly the same. And all that opposed to walking in the flesh. That's what we don't want to do. Synonymous with what we see in, explained to us in Romans 13, 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, walking by the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, all those kinds of things, exactly the same, accomplished the same way. Time in the Word each day, saturating your life so that your thoughts become changed. You renew your mind, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and thoughts begin to differ and reactions differ, and you'll know that the Lord's taking over as you begin first reactions to things that happen to you, and those things are Spirit-controlled. You know the Lord is beginning to work through His Word in your heart. So as a true follower of Christ, we desire to sin less, obviously, as we're older in the faith and to walk in holiness. And one of the ways we can do that and be victorious in the active battle that every believer has to fight is to shore it up with the Word of God. And part of the reason why I teach the way I teach, verse by verse, is to model what it can look like to read the Word of God with understanding and come away with that time, from that time changed. That's what we really want. And may that be your experience. It's my desire and my prayer for you all the time. And perhaps even for the first time for some of you this year that you're able to have the benefit of a private time in the Word each day. Now, let's get to our study today. Starting way back in May, we began our corporate journey through the pastoral letters. Verse by verse, explaining Scripture with Scripture, we've entitled the study, Instructions for the Church for Teaching and Leading and Equipping. And speaking of teaching, there's an old story, perhaps you've heard it, of a young seminary graduate who was seeking to pastor his first church one pulpit committee requested an interview, so the young pastor went, and he, the committee gathered together, and the chairman began questioning. He says, quote, young man, do you know your Bible? And the man, young man answered back, yes, sir, I know the Bible from front to back. Another asked, do you know the stories and parables? The candidate answered, oh, yes, I know all the stories and all the parables. Another committee member said, well, tell us one of the parables of Jesus. Tell us, uh, let's say, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so he did, and it went like this. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who went down to Jericho by night and he fell among stony ground and the thorns rose up and choked him nearly half to death. He said, what shall I do? And then he said, I shall arise and go to my father's house. And he arose and climbed up in a sycamore tree and the next day Solomon and his wife Gomorrah came by and they carried him down to the ark for Moses to take care of him. And as he was going through the eastern gate into the ark, he caught his hair in a limb and he hung there for 40 days and 40 nights. And afterwards... He hungered, and the ravens came and fed him. And the next day, three wise men came and carried him down to Nineveh. And when he got down there, he found Delilah sitting on the wall, and he cried out, throw her down, boys. And they said, how many times shall we throw her down? Unto seven times? And he said, nay, unto 70 times seven. So they threw her down 490 times, and she burst asunder in their midst, and they picked up 12 baskets of her fragments. And then they asked, Lord, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? pulpit committee chairman said, folks, I think we got to call him. I know he's young, but he sure knows his Bible. <laughs> Obviously, that's not what we're looking for, is it? Let's open our Bibles together, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Uh, we spent the, last, uh, the first 30 minutes of our service talking to God, haven't we? In prayer and in song, and now we're going to spend the next 45 hearing from him through his word. So let's read there, verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Verse 3, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Verse 5, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Verse 6, and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let's stop right there. As you know, if you've been with us, we've been looking at the qualifications for elders. This is God's requirements for those in the church. 
and it is guidelines for public worship, as we picked up in chapter 2. This is how the church is to function, and this is a standard of godliness that those who lead the church must meet. And as we've seen, though, there's only one standard of godliness for everyone, for those in the pew and those in the pulpit. And last week, we picked up in verse 3, and we looked at and explained standards 12 through 16. And so, what I'd like to do, just very briefly, is review just what we looked at last week, as is our habit. If you missed us last week, or this is your first time with us, don't feel like you won't know where we are. I think you can connect pretty easily as we just read and study and explain the Word of God. But in verse 3, we saw last week not addicted to wine or pugnacious, gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. And the first one was not addicted to wine, literally not beside wine is how we understand the words to clearly teach us in the Scripture. So the emphasis here is where you spend your time, the atmosphere with others who drink. That's to be avoided. That's what is the appearance. And remember, as we looked at all these, with the exception of being apt to teach, these all have to do with testimony and character. And it helps to guide the testimony and goes well with what we saw in verse 2, that those who lead the church and those in the church are to be temperate. That means wineless from verse 2. So number 12, the overseer must be one who is careful to avoid the appearance of a drinker, not only not be a drinker, but the appearance, those associations and those kind of locations are what's in view here. And that pairs very well with the godly standard that we saw everyone is to hold from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 22. Instructing us to, verse 22, avoid all appearance of evil. It means, mark it, to avoid all outward appearances of a compromised testimony for everyone, not just for those who lead. Anything that you can do that makes you look like the world and makes them question whether or not you're a believer is to be avoided. So that puts a lot of freedom inside of your uh, decision-making and a lot of responsibility. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, we see much the same thing. I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he's an immoral person, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, methosos, that's another word for having to do with alcohol, it's to, be, it's to be drunk, intoxicated, or drinking to the point where there's some impact from that alcohol, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one, and associate is to be in the company of, or in proximity to, so that helps us very clearly understand the previous understanding of 1 Timothy 3, which is you are to literally not be beside wine, those who are doing it, and drinking is mentioned here, and then it calls any so-called brother, in other words, they're so-called believers, why? Because they're doing precisely what 1 Thessalonians 5.22 said not to do, which is they are uh, involving themselves in things which call into question whether or not they have a relationship to Christ. So this applies to everyone. One of those things is alcohol. Then the next thing we saw last week was pugnacious, literally not a giver of blows or a striker. And so that example then for holiness for everyone is that you have to have an even temper. You don't strike with your fists when you're annoyed. Instead of that, you're gentle, not domineering, able to yield. And we saw uh, that was number 14 as an example of, of godliness when people oppose the leader of the church, which happens quite frequently in the ministry. He can defend his position with restraint. And the understanding for that is illustrated here. We didn't look at this last week, but it's a passage we'll look at later in our study in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. It says, the Lord's bondservant, so speaking of uh, the minister, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. In other words, he is not someone who's looking for a fight. That's the same word as peaceable that we're going to see in just a minute. But kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with, here's our word, gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. So in the middle of correcting, he's doing it in such a way that it's not domineering. Gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, and that happens often, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So in all those things, you're leading the church in such a way that they can come and have opportunity to come in holiness. And then we saw the next one, he's to be peaceable. Again, not contentious. And that was number 15. He doesn't look for a fight. Exactly what we saw in 2 Timothy 2.24. And, and one who aspires to the office of overseer has to give an example of this. And this is the example of godliness, and this is one standard of godliness for everyone. And then look at the last part of verse 3. Free, it says, from the love of money. So literally, we saw it's not a friend of silver. And the example the overseer then has to give is that he is not to have his attention fixed on a monetary reward. 
In order to do that, then, he's going to have to have an unceasing battle to keep material things in their proper balance. And if that's the requirement the Lord has for those who lead the church, it's the same requirement he has for the church. And, and if, uh, in order to determine whether or not we come in line here, last time we looked at a number of passages to help us objectively measure our connection with material things, and we won't go over that again today. It took quite a bit of time, and I would point you back online, and you can listen to that if you missed it. Now, let's look at the next qualification for ministry and an example of godliness, and that's number four. That's verse four, if you would. Look there. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Verse five, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And what you're going to see in verses four through seven, you're going to see the requirement, and you're going to see the negative impact of not meeting the requirement. So it becomes very, very weighty, and I think that you'll understand that as we come through. But this principle is especially cited because churches in those days met in homes, and very often in the home of the elder. And so we're going to look at these words in a moment, and the rest of them in the verse, but I want to point out a few similar words here that's going to help us give our principle of guideline for those who lead the church. First one is, look there, it says, he must be one who manages, here it is, his own household. Uh, We see that twice. That's oikos, that's the word oikos. We understand the meaning of that noun. Uh, This is the family God has given to the leader. It certainly can include the house and, and managing that and, and property and all of that kind of thing, finances, but it's mostly dealing with the people who are in it. And then we see the word, this, the word, the church of God. Now, that is the word ecclesia. It's a compound word, called out ones, the assembly, if you will, that has to do with all those who name the name of Christ. And before we make our point, I want to draw your attention to a passage or two we've looked at a number of times as we remember the theme of the letters. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul says, I write so that you'll know how one ought to conduct himself in the, mark this, household of God. That's the word oikos. That's an interesting way to describe it. Well, what is that, Paul? Well, that's the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So the church of the living God is also called the what? It's called the household of God. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, we see very similarly, it's in an adjective form. He says, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of, here it is, the household of faith. What's the household of faith? The same thing as the household of God, which is the church. Referring to the church. And again, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, so then you're no longer strangers or aliens. You were set apart from the Lord. You weren't in, you weren't a part of the house, but you are fellow citizens with the saints now. So along with every other believer, you are a fellow citizen of heaven and you are of God's, what is it? Oikos. Again, referring to the church. So if you look at that, I think you can see, and this is the reason why I wanted you to see both households. It makes it easy to see the connection that Paul uses. And that's number 17. The overseer who fails at the family household is therefore disqualified from the other household, the church. If you fail with a family household, you're disqualified from the other household. And the common sense application of a really straightforward requirement and its disregard has brought a lot of trouble on God's people over the centuries. And without going into all this, because we would spend weeks with this, but if you remember Eli's sons, and if you don't, go look at them. And then later Samuel's sons, which Samuel's sons' disobedience to him and godlessness is the reason why Israel cried out for a king. They said, hey, you're dying and you're not going to be around and your sons don't walk with the Lord. And so appoint a king over us. This disruption and disqualification is very common in the modern church too, although you wouldn't think it because men don't step down from those positions. And I pointed this out from the Word of God numerous times and to you uh, as my own personal conviction, but I really believe that undisciplined, willful, disobedient children may be the most common factor in difficulties in the church. Undisciplined, willful, disobedient children may be the most common factor in difficulties in the church. Not only do they disrupt what's going on in the church and those who are there, they also cause problems that elders have to deal with with the parents. And those kids will eventually grow up and be in youth groups and adults in the church. And what I've noticed over the years is that 
Undisciplined parents tend to produce undisciplined kids. I guess it's genetic. But the Word of God most certainly confirms that those who aspire to the office of elder, and later we're going to see deacon, must have demonstrated the ability to lead their families to Christ and have demonstrated himself to be spiritually successful as the leader of his family. And of course, the easiest way to know that is if the children are still in the house, especially if, as in the first century, the church is meeting in your home. It's not too hard to figure out whether or not your children are under control if you're actually leading the church in your own home and your children are disruptive. So the family then, I think, is very clearly the proving ground for leadership skills. And so the scripture says he must be one who manages his own household. And manages is a compound verb, proistemi, pro is over or above, and histemi, to stand or fix securely. Like the foundation of a building is secured by proper building. To preside over, to rule, it's the same word we saw in Timothy when it said the elder is to rule, proistemi, over the church. That's the idea. And again, this just affirms that this is the biblical role of men. This is not your wife's job to do this. It's your job to do this. And again, I know that flies in the face of woke culture, but that is how it is. And that's how the culture works the best. Because there's just one standard, obviously, that applies to everyone. So the man is to establish the biblical standard in the home and to guide it and to fix it securely. Obviously, there are some shared responsibilities. Obviously, it's not just him doing the home. And as we've already seen, and we'll see again, there is a sense in which there are some home management duties for the wife and certainly outside the home in Proverbs 31. And we're not taking in all of those, but primarily, because we've looked at this already, that she has a focus of raising godly children and reversing the curse one child at a time. And we're going to see that again in 1 Timothy. And as I said, this is the same word, proistomy, that we saw in 1 Timothy 5.17 as an elder. He is to rule as an elder. He's the, in the primary spot, just like the man is for the family. So then if he is to proistomy his household, the way that he does that will give evidence of him being able to do that kind of thing in the church. That's the whole issue. Consequently, he is to be the leader in his home and a strong spiritual leader, by the way, in that house. Now notice it says that he manages or rules at home. He's to manage well. And here's the thing. We're going to talk about this in just a second. It's not just that he manages, okay? He has to manage well. There are a lot of men who are filling the role of manager, but they aren't doing it very well. They may bring in the money. They may provide a comfortable home. They may make sure everybody gets to go to college and whatever and have a nice car and all that, but they aren't getting the desired effect because that isn't what it's talking about. So let's look at that. Look at the last word. He, who, he must be one who manages his own household. Coles, that's the adverb for, that's the, uh, adverb for good. But it has much more. There's a lot of words in the Greek for good and well. But this word brings with it some, a few ideas uh, that indicate beauty. It's like looking at a sculpture and you realize that it was well done. But it also provides this beauty to your soul. You look at it and you just absorb it. My wife knows that when we go to the National um, Art Museum in the Smithsonian and... Um, it may be some classic piece of art that you enjoy. She knows that she'll lose me if she doesn't keep close track because I have a couple places I like to dodge in and just stand there in front of it and just look at it. And obviously, the person was talented. They're masters and they know what they're doing. But there's a beauty there too beyond just the beauty of their ability to paint it. That's the issue as it has to do with managing your family well. And I think that you've seen this and perhaps understand it. Maybe you didn't realize but that's a... That has to do with the family, and it's a pretty high standard for the pulpit and for the pew. It's finely done, and, and the standard for the believing family, a man leading his family in such a way that it appears beautiful to those who look at it. I mean, you see all the little kids, you realize all the work, and I understand that. We had for all the work that goes into just getting anywhere. And you realize that it was probably chaotic in some points, but because they're in order and because they obey, there's a beauty there beyond the work, see. Beyond that's just being good. And that's the idea. So that's a high standard to make it beautiful like that. Now there's been a saying in the church, and it's still around in very real sense today. And here it is. 
I'll take care of the church and God will take care of my family. And many men have fallen victim to that wrong advice. Because if we understand this instruction at all, we understand that if you don't care, take care of your family, both physically and spiritually, and that's proven by observation, so it's not subjective, it's subjective, then you can't take care of the church. And if children walk in dissipation, in other words, you didn't lead them to faith, these are the people who knew you best and they didn't follow Christ, then that's a sure sign you won't be able to lead the church to the right end either. That's the high standard. And again, it's not that the qualified man's family is perfect. They're not. No family is perfect. And it's not that the qualified man's children are perfect because no children are perfect. Children make mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. But what will be unmistakable, though, is the direction of their lives. Not that did they make a mistake, not that they stumble. But what is the direction of their lives? When they're young, they respect and obey First-time obedience, and we've looked at that numerous times with Ephesians 6 a few years ago. We'll look at it just briefly today. Obedience for your children is not you saying it a number of times. The word obedience is the same word Jesus used, it's used of Jesus, when it says even the wind and waves obey him. So then picture Jesus standing in the boat and saying, peace be still, and they still have a storm for another hour. That is not obedience, see. What happened when he said, peace be still? It stopped. That's the obedience. It has to be part of raising your children correctly. And so, when they're older, not just when they're younger, but when they're older, they're going to have a growing relationship with the Lord. Obviously, they're not going to walk in direct obedience under you every day, but they have to show that they're not walking in rebellious disobedience, and they're not walking in dissipation, and they're not taking their cues from the world and walking as if they've never been exposed to the gospel. That would disqualify the man with older children. And this can be so hard because, you know, a man may appear to have his spiritual life together. He may appear from all aspects to be qualified in all these other areas that we've examined. But he may be disqualified to lead because of the testimony of ungodliness in his family. And it could be for a number of reasons. And there are any type, like we go through these passages, I, I tell you all the time, there are all kinds of scenarios that have to have the Bible uh, applied to them. But there's a number of scenarios here. Maybe he started too late to realize his responsibility, either by coming to faith later or becoming convicted of his shortcomings as a spiritual leader, but too late. Or maybe he's been absent from his home for long periods of time for work or whatever where his influence was needed, but it was missing. Or maybe he bought the lie, I'll take care of the church and that God will take care of my family kind of thing. And so early on, then, when the children are little and the marriage is young, the cumulative effect of the shortcomings aren't necessarily visible, which is why the Lord says that it is the older women who are to teach the younger, after it's proven out what happened with the children. And those things may have a similar result if you came late to the party or you weren't there or whatever, you just established patterns with your wife and your children that weren't godly, and it was too late for you to change them. And at that point, no matter how spiritual he may be, set before God in a right place, and he qualifies on all the other issues, he would not be qualified to lead the church, you see? And this qualification, which is primarily the family, the wife and the children, if the Lord gives them, and the order of the home, these things are not easy. I got to talk about this recently with a question that was asked about how do you do that? And we're going to look at some of the things very, very clearly, but just from, from my experience, having now four grown sons, how do you do that? How, how do you make sure they're going to walk with the Lord? How do you make sure that they come up under you? Well, I will tell you, it's um, prioritizing ministry and family if you're going into the ministry. Coming home early and taking time off. And excluding all the other interruptions, and, and I would say to you, if you're not in the ministry, you have to exclude the other interruptions. It can't be work, work, work all the time. It can't be you uh, committed to a bunch of things when you need to be committed to what's going on with your house. And, and as I've told you, I've pastored, I've got the opportunity to pastor three churches. I've had as many questions for pulpit committees as they've had for me. And one of them was, I hope you don't expect me to be in, and I've had this, you need to visit every single person in the church every year in their home. Well, listen, first of all, 
that's not a biblical requirement for an elder. Number two, that's not good use of my time. I'm supposed to equip you for works of service and make sure you're doing that. And you make sure you need to be in the hospital for everyone who's sick. I have to be in the hospital for everyone who's sick? What about you? You're their friends. I have to equip you for that. Now, I go and do that, and I have to be an example, First Peter 5 says, to the flock by doing things. But listen, if you let the church dictate to you as a minister what you have to do every single day, you're going to miss the main responsibility that you have. And if you don't do well there, you're not qualified to be in the pulpit, period. And so there's a lot of time that you have to spend and requirements that you have to uh, make sure that you exclude, requirements from the church that you can't do. Because the church will dominate your life if you let it. And that's not a bad thing. It, this is the reason why I went into the ministry, to meet needs and to be useful for the Lord, a vessel that He could use and pour out into people and make a difference. But at some point, you have to realize that you have a bigger responsibility, and that's to produce disciples in your own home. And if you can't do that, you can't lead the church. And so these things have to be navigated with constant vigilance. There's no let-off time. You've got to be on top of that all the time. People ask me, what did you do for hobbies? Well, I did a lot of stuff up into my 30s, and then I started having children. And you know what? When they say to my wife, when's daddy coming home? Guess what? I'm not stopping to play golf, and I'm not going to work out. I'm going to go home, because there's little minds in there thinking, when is daddy going to get home? And they're waiting at the window. And that's important. You have this little window. You get to form these lives, and you're going to have to make sure you make the most of it. And as we think about this one standard for the Christian father and husband and home. And we look at this last part of verse 4, and we've touched this already. So this applies to everyone, but the, the, those in the pulpit have to lead by example. Look at, look at the last part of verse 4. Keeping his children, here it is, under control with all dignity. What's that mean, all dignity? We'll look at it in a minute, but dignity is not yelling at your child after the 10th time you've told him to do something, you didn't enforce it, and now you're screaming at him. That's not dignity, Okay. Dignity is not chasing after your child in the store who won't obey you and then they throw down on the floor and through a fit because you didn't manage that well. That's not dignity. There's an order, a cosmos, if you will. That's the idea. So the passage here is dealing with younger children, obviously. You're not keeping your older children under your control with all dignity, all right? They're living their own life. And so there's requirements for them as we looked at a minute ago. But they're to be under control. And that's the verb hupotasso. It's one we're familiar with. It's a compound military term. Hupo is under and tasso is to appoint. And the idea is to appoint under. So it's, it's to be in subjection to someone, to follow orders in the military, to line up in rank order underneath. And beloved, if there is anything missing in today's child-rearing philosophy, it's certainly acting on the biblical understanding of this responsibility. Because I hear this all the time. I want them to be a free spirit. I want them to be fierce and do what they want. I want to let them make their own choices and do what they want. You know, listen, those are not biblical advice, and that is not biblical philosophy, okay? That's worldly philosophy. Did you know when your child is born, he is born on his way to an eternity without Christ? Uninterrupted, that's where they'll end up. You want them to be a free spirit? You want them to be fierce and do what they want? Here's what will happen. They'll go straight from the cradle to the grave into a Christless eternity unless you intervene. You have to understand that. Your child, when he's born or she's born, has every sin known to man in their own little heart, and they're just waiting till they're old enough to exercise it. And if you don't think that I'm right, just look at the world that's apart from Christ. And look at what's going on in, the, in today's public high school. You don't have to go very far to see pretty much every single sin going on. And even in our, even in our private schools, in our home schools, you still see stuff like this. That's what happens if you leave them to themselves. The Bible says if you leave a child to himself, he'll bring his mother shame. That's pretty much straight across. I'll tell you, beloved, in 30 years of ministry, I have buried a lot of teenagers. And almost exclusively, these were rebellious teenagers. So this is a very, very important issue. And this is missing in today's philosophy of understanding your child. And I mentioned, this is where some of the biggest problems in the church find their source, too. Parents who will not discipline, allow their children to be willful, and then that just disrupts everything else and bumps into everything else, and you have to speak about it, and that causes problems with the parents. And not the smallest of problems, which is the disqualification of leaders. People wonder why they're not affected. They wonder why they're not ministering to anybody, right? 
If your children are not walking with the Lord, it doesn't matter if you're a missionary on the field, if you're behind the, the mic at a pulpit somewhere, then you're not doing what the Lord wants you to do, and you can't bless that effort. So here's the question. How do you know then? How do you get to the correct biblical relationship with your children? And we're just going to stop here briefly because how to do this is not in focus here. And we've looked at how to do it. Here we sh- it says has to be done. But I don't want to leave you without any kind of structure here. And it's important to understand the words as they relate to your non-adult children. Which is what we have in view here in 1 Timothy 3. And there's a great illustration where we could spend weeks. And I have spent weeks here in years past. I won't... Uh, but we'll revisit it again during our child dedication classes. But in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, I just want to read it to you, and then I want to comment on it. Here it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Verse 2, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I've told you before, I wish that there was a whole book in the Bible that just says, On children. That would be really great, although I, I'm, I'm not sure the church would follow it any more than it follows this little, these four verses. This is an important section. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Your child does not know how to do this, nor do they know that that's the rule. So you have to teach them to obey you. That's your first job. They don't know how to do that when they come into your house. They are not born saying yes, yes, yes. They're born saying no, no, no. And they say it louder, more vehemently as they get older. And you have to teach them how not to say no, but how to say yes. You have to teach them to obey. And then it says, honor your father and mother. Now you have to teach them to respect. And respect is pretty important because a lot of times if you gain respect by disciplining them for it, you'll, have to, you'll be able to avoid the action of disobedience. First is respect. You see the rolling of the eyes. You see the haughty look. You see the throw up the, the, the head and you're not going to do it. The setting of the neck. I, you, know, you know all this. The setting of the arms. No, I'm not going to do it. They're not actually not doing what you say, but you know they're about to. That's a spanking. That's teaching them to respect. And this is the first commandment with a promise. So this is commandment number five of the Ten Commandments. Your kids don't know this. They don't know that there's a promise connected with obeying mom and dad. And what is the promise? Living long on the earth, and it may be well with you. Most people want to have it well with them, and they want to live a long time on the earth. But they don't know this. But you do. And so you have to teach them that in obedience there is blessing. And that's an important thing to learn. Why? Because that's how it works in real life. When you disobey, there's painful consequences related to it. As an adult, you should be able to know this pretty early. If you disobey the government, if you disobey uh, rules of the highway, if you're rebellious all the time, there are painful consequences usually come as a result of that. And so they need to know this. And then when you do what you're supposed to do, there's blessing. And that's how the Lord works. When you do what you're supposed to do, there are thousands of places that say, and I will bless you. We just read several of them. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. There's easy ways to do that. That's how not to be the dad you're supposed to be. How do you provoke your child to anger? Well, by not being there. Or if you are there, you're not connected to them, and you've got other things that are more important for you. You can provoke your child to anger by being unpredictable. One day you're in good mood, and, 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 and the field is very large, or the fence very far away from them. And other times it's a very, very small playing field, and if they do one thing they didn't get a spanking for last time, now they're doing this one, and now you're ticked. You want to provoke your child to anger, that's a good way to do it. It says don't do that. That's what you don't want to do. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So two things there. There's instruction. That's the lecture part. That's the teaching. And the discipline. My sons were small. They wanted to skip over the lecture and just get to the discipline spanking part because they weren't looking forward to the spanking and they didn't want to hear the lecture. But listen, you have to clear what the infraction was. And so it has to be clear why this is wrong, how dad explained it to you before, and why this disobedience is also disobeying the Lord. And then you have the spanking. That's the discipline. And this passage from Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, and 1 Timothy 3, 4, reveal a few things that have to be in place to get this right. And I just want to give you these, and you can mark these down if it's helpful, but you're going to see a number of these things that are clear from these two passages. 
First one is steadfast resolve. What's that mean? It just means you have to train your children by discipline and instruction. The Bible teaches there has to be painful, negative consequences for disobedience. That's very, very clear. And a father's firmness will make it advisable to obey. What's that mean? Just that when you are consistent in applying discipline, when it's consistently, they're outside the fence or standing on the fence and getting away from what you've required, you consistently do it. Over time, it becomes advisable in their own mind that they should obey. And younger kids learn from what you've done with the older one. So if you haven't been very consistent with the older one, you're going to, have to, you're going to find yourself doing the same kinds of battles with the ones that follow. But if you've been very consistent with the oldest one and they watch, they realize it's advisable to obey and that kind of advice goes on in bedrooms outside of your hearing. You better do what dad and mom say. Because that's not fun to get in trouble. And that's the kind of wisdom you want your children to pass on. Because that's real life. Painful consequences for for disregarding rules. He has to exercise authority. Now, a couple of qualifiers. He's not a tyrant. He's not a despot. He's not a megalomaniac. This isn't all about you, Dad. This isn't because they violated your rules, and now you're ticked and annoyed. You have steadfast resolve. You reward obedience, and you punish disobedience. And more than anything else, as I've said to parents over and over again, you spend a ton of time on your knees or in your bed at night when you're sleepless and you pray for them. And when they get older, you still pray for them. That they'll walk in holiness and have a good testimony and keep a short sin list. I mean, you never, you're never going to stop. But when they're little, you're going to need the understanding that you'll need to bring to this steadfast resolve and this disciplining and bringing painful consequences. No loving dad wants to spank his kid. You hate it. But you have to do it because the Bible says you need to and you do it inside, couched inside love, which we'll see in just a minute, and couched inside understanding. And you're going to need that understanding that comes from, as we talked about at the beginning of the service, being in the Word of God. So you're going to spend a lot of time on your knees asking for wisdom and in a real sense, you're going to try to interact with your children like the Lord interacts with you, which He rewards your obedience and He punishes your disobedience. Second thing you need, really, from these two different passages, I think it gives us the, the meaning of understanding. You have to be able to instruct them. And for this, you're going to need God's wisdom. And when you apply yourself to this, you're going to find yourself again on your knees and in the Word. You've got to have understanding. Sometimes you're going to come home, and if you have more than one child, you've got such a mess going on there, you don't know who was at fault and who started it and what's going on, and, and you don't want to react in anger right? You, if you're angry, you go in your room and get that straight. First of all, you're in sin before the Lord, and you're not going to bring good to anybody if you've got an angry disposition. Go get that straight, and then ask the Lord for wisdom, because you're going to need it. You're going to need understanding to be able to figure the whole thing out. You have to be able to have enough understanding to lead your children and your family, and in order to have that, you're going to have to make it reasonable to obey. Not by provoking them to anger like we saw before or inconsistency or divided loyalty or spending a lot of time in every other place except where you need to be. You have to have understanding to lead them. There has to be a reasonableness, if you will, to the requirements. Not that they have to understand perfectly why you have the rules there, but there has to be a reasonable application of them, consistent over time. Not back and forth and, you know, if you've got bipolarism, don't spank your children when you're at one end or the other, okay? Understand that there has to be a reasonableness. They have to have a reason to obey because dad's rules are fair. I don't understand them and he's strict, but they're fair and he doesn't arbitrarily apply them to one person and not to the other or arbitrarily on one day and not on another day. So there's a reasonableness there. And when they get a little older... At first, it's one first-time obedience. And when I say that, I say this. So if you tell your child, as they're playing, maybe they're young, and you say, it's time to get up and go to bed, put your toys away. They should get up and put their toys away and begin to move towards bed. If they don't move and you say, it's time to get up and put your toys away and go to bed, you've undermined your authority. That's not steadfast resolve. 
they've already disobeyed you, but they figure out pretty quick how much leeway they're going to have. They're going to have a run-up time. And so then when you get up to enforce it, and then they start to obey, they've already disobeyed you. First, by an attitude of disregard or disrespect, and secondly, by an open action of rebellion. For both of those, they get a spanking. And you have to be able to apply that reasonably. And sometimes you're going to come home and you're going to be exhausted from your day and you're worn out and you're on your last nerve. And then you also have to take care of this. And it's easy to do this. I'll take care of this tomorrow. Tomorrow is not going to help. You're just reinforcing disobedient, disrespectful behavior. So these are your young children. But as they get older and you have a requirement for them, and as my, my sons got into their preteens, I would allow them to say, Dad, may I ask you a question? Why do I want to do that? Well, because I may not know all the factors involved, and they're old enough to have a few, a little bit of understanding because they've been raised with discipline and instruction with uh, steadfast resolve. So they may have a question, and I can either say, no, son, I don't, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I need you to do what I ask, and so they have to move, or it may be, yes, can you tell me your side? And that may change what I asked, or it may not, but at least they have an outlet so you don't frustrate them. As they get older, they need to be able to, to talk, but they shouldn't be able to talk back to you, and they shouldn't sass back to you. That's disrespect, and, and, uh, and that needs to be treated with painful consequences. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Instructions to children, you have to teach it to them. Respect, attitude, action is sometimes you deal with the, res the respect first, and you don't have to deal with the action. But you have to be able to communicate God's instructions and His mind and the order of things and the vision of the future. And here it is, the whole time. Listen, don't miss the big picture. The entire time you're disciplining and instructing and explaining and praying, you're doing it all for their future that they may repent and follow Christ. Your number one job and the reason why you get disqualified from the ministry and the reason why you don't have the right to lead in, in regular life is because you are not leading your little ones to be disciples of Jesus. And that is your number one priority. And everything you do and every single rule and the way that you memorize the word of God and you apply it to them is for that. Because beloved, if you don't teach your children to submit to you and they don't understand painful consequences from not submitting, they will continue on in their disobedience and it's highly unlikely they'll come to faith. And I was a youth pastor for almost 15 years. Parents come in with rebellious kids, now they're 13 and 14, and life at home is a disaster, and they want me to be a miracle worker. And that's really what it's going to take at that point, because they missed the window, and now the child is rebellious and doesn't want to do anything that's godly, and they've seen an inconsistent uh, uh, testimony among parents, and now they're bringing them to me, and, I, and again, as I go back, this is the cause of most of the difficulty, the biggest difficulty in the church, rebellious kids, grown up with parents who were out of control and didn't bring them under, under submission, and now we've got problems. And those kids grow up, and if they stay in the church, they're rebellious, disobedient, they won't do what they're supposed to do. Listen, it's not that you're trying to rule everybody, it's not that you're autocratic, this is not that. It's just that there's a job you're supposed to do and a window you're supposed to do it in, and this is how, what has to happen for you to be qualified to stand in the pulpit, and for you to have a testimony in the community. The whole thing, the rod and reproof Proverbs 29, 15, give wisdom, but a child left to himself will bring his mother shame. The rod and reproof, that's the spanking and the lecture, will give wisdom, but a child left to himself will bring his mother shame. And then lastly, and certainly not in rank of importance by far, all these rules interchange with each other, love. Steadfast resolve, understanding, and this last one, love. And I'm not talking about sentiment. I love you, honey. A little heart on their lunchbox or in the, on the napkin in their, in their lunch. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not biblical love. I'm talking about sacrificial love. I'm talking about giving up your life, your preferences, how you'd spend your afternoon, how you'd spend your money, how you spend your life. Your children will see over time, and you're not going to do it perfectly, but your children will see over time that you love them because you're willing to give up what, for what they need. You're willing to sacrifice. Love is a verb. It's kindness. It's goodness. Faithfulness. It doesn't hold on to records of wrong. Listen, when you spank a child 
and you give them the lecture and you hug them and you pray for them, you don't bring it up two weeks from now. The Lord doesn't do that to you, does He? When he, you ask forgiveness, what does He say? It's like a, 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 a vessel that's been smashed into a million pieces, been buried in the depths of the sea, separated from you as far as the east is from the west. So make sure you don't come bringing that back. That's not love, okay? And love, beloved, will make it enjoyable to come up under you. Do you understand? They watch you sacrifice for them, and, they, and, and they, you love your wives like Christ of the church, and they watch you sacrifice your time and your priorities and your lists and whatever it is so that they can be benefited, and they realize you really do love them. And it's easier to come up under that kind of loving authority, isn't it, than to come up under somebody who's a despot or, or, or some kind of tyrant. That's not what it's supposed to be like. You have the authority, and it has to be couched in love, see? If you have the genuineness of unhindered, uninterrupted, unmistakable love, that will be the honey with the medicine. That's the good with the hard. Love has to be there. And that's a pretty narrow gate, isn't it? That's not surprising, isn't it? Because that's precisely what the Lord said being a believer would be like. It's a very narrow gate to get in. This is what it looks like. In order to be qualified, we have to do the moral stuff, and the testimony has to be there, and the hospitality, and those in the ministry have to turn away from material things, and, and leaders uh, lead their children, and they're to be subject and lined up in proper control, and they're to be respectful and, and disciplined, and we're going to see this later in Titus and deal with it there. When a child, children are older, they have to be believers, they have to profess Christ. If they don't profess Christ and live in dissipation, then he's disqualified. And this happens all the time, beloved parents who don't do their job, and then their kids grow up, and they, they leave everything that you hold dear. And it's like a living death watching them go through it. To reject all that you hold dear, to know what the, what the consequences of that rejection were, which is they never came to faith to begin with, and now they're living in open sinfulness, that's a living death. That's not what you want. They have to profess Christ. And when you get to that point, then you're just at the mercy of the Lord, and you pray. Somehow someone because you didn't, will come and, and interject themselves in their life and, and somehow the Lord will make them soft to the gospel again after we missed our opportunity. This is a very narrow gate and very important. And there's no time, there's no time to relax in that window. But, you know, when they get old enough to be aware and, and to say no and start doing those things, you got four or five years where you're going to make that difference. And after that, you've missed your window. And you don't want to live with a teenager that you missed the window. You think it's going to be sweet, it won't be sweet. It's only going to be sweet if they embrace Christ and that becomes their life too. Then it's going to be really sweet. So these are very important things and I wanted to spend enough time on them to impress them to you about how big a problem this is in today's culture. And as we said of a wife, you know, if you're ministering, you're the husband of one wife, a one woman man, if you're married, and of course that's by God's design, if you're single again by God's design, you're not disqualified just because you don't have a wife. One woman, man, if you have a wife. And I think it's the same, uh, very, very clearly the same way with children. If they're present, then you have to bring them in proper control. If there's no children present, that's by God's design, of course. It's not a disqualification because you can't have a problem with your children if you don't have any. So again, you're not disqualified because you don't have children. If you do have them, they have to be under proper control. You don't have to have a wife, but if you do, you have to be committed to her as a one-woman man. And just to get rid of some of the bad teaching that's out there, I just want to add that in there. Overall, one standard. Here it is. You manage well to a required level of proficiency the assets God has entrusted to you, whatever they are. If it's a wife, if it's children, if it's a home, you have to manage those things in, at a level of proficiency that's not subjective. It's subjective. And just to confirm again, this, this is just one standard for the pulpit and the pew. I'm going to wrap up with this illustration and we're going to close because we're out of time. Colossians 3.18, obviously not directed to leaders any more than it's directed to every believer. Here's what it says. And you'll see some of the same language, so I won't have to comment too much. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Hupakuo, come up under them. They're, in, they're the leader. You have to submit. And that's fitting in the Lord. That just means if you're a believer, that applies to you. So if you're single, choose wisely. 
Because if you come up under a man who doesn't love the Lord, that's going to be miserable for you forever until the Lord allows one of you to depart this earth. You want to choose a man who has a godly relationship well beyond anything you influence. You're not to influence that. He's to have that. He's to bring that influence to the family. Not that you shouldn't love the Lord and walk with Him because you're not going to be obedient to Him if you're not. But He is the one who brings that godly influence and the tenor of the family to the home. Husbands, love your wives and don't be embittered against them. Don't talk badly about them. Don't tell wife jokes. Don't, don't ridicule her. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, Dwell with her in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, for she's a woman, lest your prayers be hindered. You're supposed to love her like Christ loved the church. You're supposed to wash her with your words, Ephesians 6 says. She may become radiant and glorious. She can, she can achieve the things that the Lord wants her to achieve. So guys, if you're single, make sure you have a woman who who loves the Lord, is committed to Him, and has a walk with Him before she meets you, and then she will come up under you, and you can love her like Christ loved the church, and she will become the woman the Lord intended for her to be with all the ministries and outreaches and blessings that come from that relationship. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. If you're old enough to hear my words, child, and you understand what I just said, make sure you're obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, child, that it's well-pleasing to the Lord, you may not be born again. Because if you're born again, that's, that's a joy to you to know you can do something, and the Lord will say, I am well-pleased with that. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. We've talked about all the, all the ways you can exasperate them so that they will not lose heart or be discouraged. You don't want to bring it, your child to the point where they're discouraged because of your lack of ability to order your own life or prioritize the things that are important. Or to be autocratic or, or overbearing or a megalomaniac. Workers and all things obey those who are over you on the earth. Here's the same, that's hupakuo. Get under, the, you have to obey them. If you work for somebody, you're supposed to come up under them, not with external service as those merely pleasing men. So in other words, when the boss is in the room, then you're acting a certain way towards them and you're respectful, but when they go out, you're talking up your sleeve about them. You don't respect them, you're criticizing your workplace, all that. Don't do that. With a sincere heart, fearing the Lord. The Lord's the one who hears it, he watches, this is not pleasing to him as a believer. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. When you're working, who are you really working for? I mean, you have to work hard for your boss, you have to do what you're supposed to do and make sure that you are faithful because that adorns the gospel. But knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Everything else is temporary. Your relationship with the Lord is permanent. Serve Him in serving your wife and serving those who are over you in the workplace and all of that stuff, okay? So, we're at the end of our time together and we're out of time and I apologize, we've gone a little bit over. But um, we've covered a lot of things, I think, that are hard and hard to hear. But uh, there's a joy there knowing that this is, the plat this is the path and you can walk in it. And the Lord is good and desires for you to do this. It's well-pleasing to Him. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you today for the time together that we've had. We're so grateful for the fellowship of, of the family of God. We're grateful for, um, I'm very grateful for men here who they're under the radar doing this very thing the very things you said for them to do and the way you've asked them to do it. And I know that it's been hard and it's been, it's been uh, grueling and it's taken its toll and it's been sacrificial and they've lost sleep and they've lost uh, things that they could have done with their life, but they've invested it where it really, really mattered and they produced godly, uh, godly offspring. And for that, I'm very grateful, Father. And for those who have young children and are walking in obedience, it's such a beautiful thing for me to see one of the joys of Wednesday night, watching little families walk up and watching the children in obedience and the joy that's all there between parents and child. What a joy that is. And thank you for a church that's doing that. And Father, if we're, if we're, uh, if we're parents of children who are wayward, if, whether or not it's our fault because we didn't do a good job or because they've chosen, uh, because they are a free agent to do what they want to do, Lord, we pray for your grace and your mercy for them and for peace for us. All these things, Lord, are in your hand. It's a joy to know that we can change course, that if, if, if we look at the subjective standard, we realize these are things that have to happen. Uh, we can change things. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to have wisdom to do that. The understanding that's part of being 
a faithful parent, a faithful dad, a godly leader, is the ability to have understanding. And I pray that you give it to us. And you told us to ask for it, for wisdom, and you don't abrade us. You give it to us. And Father, we pray also, as Jacob played earlier, for all men everywhere, for kings, all in authority, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all sincerity. That uh, in the places of leadership, Lord, you bring godliness in our own nation with wicked leaders at the head and making godly, uh, ungodly uh, laws and, and rules, constantly handing them down, frustrating people, restricting people. Lord, I pray that uh, you can bring peace here by bringing godliness to those leadership positions. I pray for the peace of Israel, that uh, there may be the prosper in her walls as you ask us to pray, Lord, that they may come to faith completed uh, in Christ. And Father, I thank you that um, we've had the ability to pray these things. We pray them in your will. We pray for uh, the type of behavior in our families that will result in godly offspring, children who walk with you, who are obedient to us, who understand why, uh, as they get older, why it was tough on them sometimes, that they might, again, have an opportunity to raise godly children that will honor you, another generation of uh, faithfulness. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.